Uh, my name is Greg, um, and my wife is Myra. We're members here at Bethel. We're, uh, we live in, in Salado, Texas, so it's a long drive to church, but we get, <laughs> we get here as often as we can. Uh, I, I move, we moved to Salado. We just love this fellowship, so it's good to break bread with you again. Um, we, uh, I work at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor down. Go crew, yes. All right, awesome. It's good to not not Baylor. Don't confuse that with Baylor. Mary Hardin Baylor, right? Yeah. Used to be at the very beginning, but now different schools. It's good to be with you again. Um, I'm not the normal guy, uh, which Eric is the normal. That seems a weird description of Eric as the normal guy. That doesn't sound right. Yeah. But that also makes me the abnormal guy. So Eric is off today. He's, uh, he's uh, celebrating National Ice Cream Day. So did you know it's National Ice Cream Day? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure it is. Don't fact check me on that. We're just going to go with that. So enjoy. If you get nothing else out of today, you have an excuse to eat ice cream. Go for it. All right. Good stuff. Good to be with you. Um, happy to, to come and, and to get to come north from Salado so we can get out of the warm weather and enjoy the, enjoy the cool of, of the piney woods of East Texas. <laughs> Ah, good, good stuff. How many of you, we got some young people in here. How many of you young people, if you're, uh, if you're 12 or under, do you know what a sundial is? Just raise your hand if you know what a sundial is. We should probably go, oh, you know what a sundial is? What is it? They used to do it to track time. We have a scholar in the audience. That's exactly right. Do you know how it worked? Brilliant. Yes, there was a needle. We have a slide that shows a picture of a, if Mr. Coltman will put that slide up. Yeah, so this is an example of a sundial. They weren't always on the ground facing up. Sometimes they were on a wall. You could orient them toward the sun, and they had some kind of needle that would cast a shadow over, over the face of a timepiece. So this, this would be, how old, how old do you think these were? When did they used to track time this way? Back, back when your dad was a boy? <laughs> this was a long time ago. This is before mechanical clocks. This is how, this was how time was tracked. Uh, I, I imagine it would be hard to, it would be hard to synchronize these things because what would you synchronize them with? Your 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 neighbor's sundial. I don't know if there was an atomic sundial somewhere that was like the master of all sundials. But yeah, so this was, this was how how time was tracked. And unlike unlike today, where you may have a smartwatch that does multiple things. These were kind of single purpose. They were just to tell time, and they only worked, obviously, in the daytime. Uh, but, but in fact, um, they did have a second purpose, which is unknown to us today, but sundials served to, to do something else, which we'll find out. Oftentimes, the old sundials, which you won't find, if you go to like a garden store now and you find a sundial, it'll have some kind of cutesy message on it, like, you know, grow old with me, the best is yet to come, or something like that, um, right? It's something about a garden and birds and things like that, you know, positive flowery things. Uh, typically, the old sundials would have a, like a Latin phrase, and uh, so I'm not, a, I'm not a Latin speaker, so my, my, if you're any Latin scholars in the audience, my pronunciation may be off here as I try to pronounce these Latin phrases. Um, I've never lived in Latinia, so um, so here are some typical, mo- they call them sundial mottos. Here are some typical phrases uh, that, that could be found on old sundials. Uh, one was lente ora celeritir ani, which roughly means an hour passes slowly, but the years go by quickly. Uh, another one on a sundial was Miam vide umbrum tuum vidibus vitum. Look at my shadow and you will see your life. Uh, one was periunt et imp- imputinator, which the hours are consumed and will be charged to our account. Uh, one said omnis vulnerant ultima nicat. That's this one here. Does anybody know Latin? 
Anybody want to take a stab at that? No Latin? Good. Yeah, I can tell you anything, and you have to believe me. Uh, this meant all hours wound, the last one kills. And that's a cheery thing. That, <laughs> to put that on, you know, in the wall of the town with your sundial, or everybody has to look at. Uh, another one was, uh, Sic vita fluit dum stare veditur which meant simply life is tedious and brief. There's a, there's a cheery thought for the garden. Uh, Ultima laetat et observatur omnis. Our last hour is hidden from us so that we watch them all. Uh, and finally, one, one was memento et more, which, mem, which just simply meant remember you will die. That just kind of gets down, gets down to the root of it, doesn't it? Now, what's going on here? Why, why would these cheery things be put on sundials. Remember, sundials, everybody looked at to see what time it was, and they would be reminded uh, with these kind of things. Uh, but, but what I'm going to suggest is that the reason they did that is to apply biblical wisdom, because the Bible reminds us that we should take thought that, that we live in, uh, in temporal time. We, we, our, our time is not eternal here. We're here for a moment as God allows. Here's some passages that reflect that. Uh, James 4, 13 through 14 says, Now listen, you say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 2 says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. And Psalm 39 says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom, in vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. And so, so these passages remind us of the importance of understanding that life is not eternal. And finally, the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to spend some time in this morning, if you'll turn to Psalm 90 in your Bible. We're going to take a look at Psalm 90. And right now we're going to look at the main idea of this passage, which becomes our main idea of the morning, which is simply straight out of the passage, Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So that's, so that's Psalm 90, verse 12, and that's the main idea for today. But we're going to take it in context of the whole psalm. Psalm 90. And what we're going to see in this psalm is that it's got three movements. Uh, it's broken up into Psalm 1 through 11, which talks about life is short and full of trouble. And then it, in Psalm 12 then becomes the, or excuse me, Psalm 90 verse 12 becomes the hinge of Psalm 90. So whereas the first part of Psalm 90 says life is short and full of trouble, uh, Psalm 90 verse 12 is, is, is Teach us to number our days, Lord, which means focusing on the brevity of life will awaken us to live living, awaken us to wise living. And then, and then verses uh, 13 through 17, such wise living uh, will lead to God's blessings. So that's where we're going, these kind of three phases of Psalm 90 as we look at the, this morning. Let's start with the first part as we dig into it. Life is short and full of trouble, and, uh, and we'll just look at the first six verses. As you note... Uh, maybe in your Bible, it shows the same thing that I have in my Bible, where right above Psalm 90, it says book four. Uh, did you know that the, Psalm, the Psalms are made up of five books? It's a collection of Hebrew poetry and songs, and they're made up of, of five books. And so this is book four. This is the first Psalm in book four of that collection of poetry. And, uh, and it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, that's interesting because you and I both know 
who wrote all the Psalms. We always thought, at least me, I always thought David wrote the Psalms, right? Uh, but that's not true. There's actually at least five different writers of the Psalms. David wrote the bulk of them, probably over half of them. But this, this Psalm is written by Moses. Now that's interesting because Moses lived a long time before David, centuries before David, Moses existed. So that means that David didn't invent Psalms, um, but Psalms were around when Moses was around. So how is it uh, that, that Moses, you think about ancient Moses, how did he know how to write, let alone be a poet? Well, you remember Moses' life. Where did Moses grow, grow up? In Egypt, right? Now, he was, his life was threatened as a baby because Pharaoh was tired of the Hebrews multiplying so fast. And so, so Pharaoh put out a decree that all the firstborn Hebrew sons uh, should be killed. And so what did Moses' mother do? Took him down to the Nile River and, and, and put him in a basket and hid him in the reeds. Now, that's a desperate attempt. Um, but it, God in his sovereignty has a plan here. And Pharaoh's uh, household, is, I believe is one of Pharaoh's daughters, finds him in the reeds and, and rescues him, brings him in uh, to Pharaoh's household. And he's raised as an Egyptian in the palace. And again, in, in God's sovereignty, you know, if that, if that were the end of the story, Moses would never have identified with the fact that he was Hebrew. But in God's sovereignty, the, uh, the Egyptians decide we need a nursemaid, and who do they hire? Moses' mother is brought into the palace to raise her own child. Amazing thing. And so Moses is able to hang on to his identity as a Hebrew because he's raised by his own mother. And uh, that being the case, he's raised in the palace of Pharaoh himself. And at that time, the Egyptian education system was the best in the world and the most advanced in the world. So Moses is brought up not just as an Egyptian, but brought up as royalty and, and given all the best uh, education uh, that Egypt could offer. Now, what does that mean? That means he gets to learn how to write. Uh, he gets to learn how to do poetry. The Egyptians were poets as well. We know that um, from archaeology and whatnot. Uh, he gets to know how to do government because he's going to be placed uh, and given authority in, in the uh, government structure of Egypt. And all that's going to be important because God is going to use him later on uh, not just to, to lead the, the, the uh, Hebrews out of captivity in Egypt, but he's going to form a government with these Egyptians. Well, he's got experience doing that. Uh, God is also going to use Moses to write a, a good deal of Scripture, an important part of Scripture. The first five books of the Bible are, are attributed to Moses, Job, and, and here at least Psalm 90, maybe even Psalm 91, written by Moses. Well, God brought him up to do this very task. Uh, out of, against all possible odds, uh, Moses is saved and educated and, and delivers Scripture and, and the nation of Israel. Um, so amazing how, how that's brought up. So this, is, so this is Hebrew. So Psalm is Hebrew poetry. And so the first six verses, uh, I've kind of highlighted it. The Hebrew poetry doesn't work like poetry that, that I like. Um, I like poetry that rhymes and makes sense. I like poetry like uh, I am Sam, Sam I am. You get, right? You get, that's the poetry I'm used to. Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. It doesn't really work with rhymes like that. We wouldn't know it if it did because it's not written in our language. Uh, Hebrews uh, used a lot of uh, thought symmetry, and, and sometimes would state something and, and, and state the opposite. Um, and, and a lot of times it was to call your attention to something. So if you look at this very, excuse me, very carefully, in the first six verses, there's a couple of different thoughts that run through there, and, and uh, something breaks the flow of thought. L look at verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So the focus is on God. 
Verse 2 focuses still on God. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So focusing on God's eternality. And then verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals, and the, and the focus shifts. Now it's on us and, and the, the temporariness of our lives. Verse 4 switches back to God. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And verse 5 and 6, the focus goes back to man. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass at the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. So you see how 3 and 4 are inverted. The flow of thought is 4 should go be behind verse 2. Then it would make sense. Verse 2, before the mountains were born, you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Verse 4, a thousand years are in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. That's a, flow, that's a complete flow of thought. But Moses intentionally disrupts it by sticking the context of 3, which should go with 5 and 6, above 4, which goes with 1 and 2. So there's a little flaw that that's supposed to catch the attention of you as you're reading through this, and you go, wait a minute, something doesn't seem quite right. So verses 3 and 4 then become kind of the main point of what he's saying in verses 1 to 6. Namely, 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. That is, our lives are temporary. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, that God is eternal. And it, and it changes our perspective. The idea is meditate on these things and, and think about the fact that our lives are temporary. God lives, God's life uh, is eternal. Um, think about that and how, how it's a practical way in which Moses would have understood this. So Moses spends the first 40 years of his life being trained in the royal courts of Pharaoh's household in Egypt. If you remember the story, he protects the life of one of his fellow Hebrews from an, an Egyptian, kills the Egyptian, and then he has to, Moses has to flee for his life, so he's in exile. So the next 40 years of his life are spent in exile in Midian. Now, how does God protect the, the culture of the Hebrews while Moses is away in Midian? Well, as it turns out, the Midianites are cousins. Uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is the covenant um, relationship that God is going to give birth to uh, Israel with. Uh, but after Sarah dies, Moses takes a second wife, Keturah, and, and um, it is through her, one of her sons is named Midian. And the nation of Midian comes from Abraham, essentially. Not the covenant line, but Midian traces its lineage back to Abraham as well. So, so Moses grows up the second 40 years of his life in Midian, and basically it's very agricultural and, and livestock. So he's, so he's a shepherd for the next 40 years of his life. And it's during that time where he has some space, some time to reflect, that God appears to him in a burning bush. Now, again, talking about the eternality of God God's going to give him something very important because God's going to say, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead the Hebrew people out of bondage, and we're going to take them, and we're going to, um, through you, I'm going to create a, a nation. I'm going, to, I'm going to fulfill this Abrahamic covenant part and giving, you, giving a nation to Israel. And Moses has an important question for God, and he says, when I go back to the people there in Egypt, and I say to the Hebrews that God has told me this, they're going to ask me, what is this God's name? And what does God tell Moses? My name is Yahweh. Interesting word. It's a Hebrew word, and in Hebrews you don't get vowels, so the pronunciation is based on the context. And sometimes vowels get inserted just for the sake of pronouncing it. But Yahweh has no vowels. It's, it's Y-W-H, Yahweh. It's an interesting word that God chose to name himself to Moses because that is a Hebrew word of being. And it means I am, which we know it, uh, which we know it to be. Christ is going to say that later on. Christ is going to say, I am. He's going to use that very term of himself, indicating that he is God. Uh, but, but, it's, but it's more general than that. It, it means I am, but it also means I was, 
And it also means I will be. So, so it's an amazing thing that in the very name that God gives Abraham, built into that is this concept of eternality, that any time they uttered the name of God, they would be reflecting on the fact that God is eternal. It's built in. Uh, so, so God reveals His name Yahweh to Moses, and then He reveals that uh, to the people. And that's the proper perspective. Now, sometimes we lose sight of that, and, and bad things happen in societies that shrink that gap, that we are temporal and God is eternal. But a lot of times we like to shrink that gap. Uh, as I said, it's, it's wise, the Bible tells us, to remember that, that our lives are short. But we don't like to think about that. Um, and, and so sometimes we reduce our God and we magnify ourselves so that there's a shrunken gap between us and God. And, and bad things happen as a result of that. All the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, um, when, when Satan came to Adam and Eve and, and they said, you know, um, Satan said, surely you will not die if you take of that fruit. And they doubted God's truth. And, and God shrunk for a moment in their lives and they thought, you know, I'll, I'll determine truth for myself, thank you very much. And, and they took of the fruit and so the rest of the time, we see God's wrath poured out because of that sin, and we all experience that wrath uh, that came from the garden. So life is short, verses 1 through 6, and life is uh, full of trouble, verses 7 through 11. It says, uh, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear uh, that is your due. And who would know wrath, talking about God's wrath on us, and who would know wrath like Moses? Uh, where we, we got to see a couple of different things. Number one, we're all under God's wrath in the sense that Adam and Eve sinned, and so we're all born with a sin nature. We're all born into sin, and the Bible says the whole earth moans and groans under the weight of that sin. So sin, inf it, it infects everything, not just our lives, uh, but, but the whole planet. The whole, the whole of creation suffers because of the sin of mankind. Okay? So that's one thing. But Moses is going to see something even more specific. As, as God has Moses lead his people out of Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai where they're going to form a government. And as part of that government, government um, they're going to agree to a covenant. Now, they already have the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Because they are descendants of Abraham, they are promised a land and a seed that they're, they're always going to uh, exist. They're always going to have a land. Um, and so that God will fulfill that. That is unconditional. But now with Moses, once they get to Mount Sinai, they're going to be given a conditional covenant. Uh, so, so Moses sets them up and says, if you will obey me, God, God says, if you will obey me, you'll come under the blessings of the covenant. But if you disobey me, you'll come under the cursings of the covenant. That's what we call the Mosaic covenant. And so Moses sees wrath in general, like we all do, from the fact that there is original sin and things aren't what they should be. But he's going to see even more specifically wrath on a nation. That is the nation of Israel once they're born. They, they don't, as the story goes, they don't stay faithful to God and they're constantly under the wrath of God for disobedience to the covenant. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, that's basically what it's talking about. The prophets were sent to Israel to say, look, God promised you if you would, if you would stay obedient, He would bless you, but you haven't, so this is why you're being cursed. And it wasn't popular. That's why the prophets weren't popular people. But that's what they were sent, was to remind Israel of Mosaic Covenant. 
And when we get to the New Testament, that idea of wrath on sin, Paul echoes these thoughts as well. It's basically a parallel of Psalm 90. Uh, in, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That is the wrath of God, that we, the, the results of sin that we live under. Therefore, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So, so in this life, it is short and it is full of trouble because of the effects of sin. Now, I want to be quick to, to mention the fact, because this is very important, that although we live under the wrath of God, that is in a general sense because of the effects of sin, but Romans 8.1 says very specifically that if you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So though we still struggle with the effects of sin in general, your own personal sin is not counted against you because of what Jesus Christ has done. You just nearly, merely need to believe in Jesus Christ, and there is no condemnation for you. Uh, verse 12 then, this brings us to verse 12, which again is that hinge point. Teach us to number our days. In light of the fact that life is brief, in light of the fact that life is full of trouble, teach us to number our days. In other words, focusing on that, on that brevity of life will awaken us to wise living. It will help us to, to treasure the time that we have on this earth. Pondering our temporary lives moves our eyes off of us and onto the permanence of God. That's why we don't need to avoid it. It's, it's, in, the, in our culture, there's a constant pressure to avoid any thought of death and to sanitize that away from our existence. But, but it's wise to consider that, that we will have an end of our life. Um, acknowledging the brevity of human life and the eternal nature of God invites us to develop a proper perspective then. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Recognizing the transience of our earthly lives and seeking to live in a way that honors God and embraces His eternal nature is the point of, of 12. Now, again, that's a hinge point. Again, first, first 11 verses in Psalm 90, life is short and difficult. Uh, verse 12 is the hinge, so it's an appeal to God. Teach us to number our days. And incidentally, the, the title of the psalm you'll see is that this is a prayer of Moses. So this is the part where, uh, where Moses begins to ask God for something. Number one, he begins to ask him for wisdom. If life is brief and full of trouble, how should I live then? And that's what verse 12 is about. And then it moves to verses 13 through 17, uh, which, which we then read, Relent. Now, notice as he as he says this, the kind of prayer. Look at what he's asking of God in light of the fact that our lives are brief and transient. Verse thirteen starts with, "Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble." May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So that's what, that's the, the hinge point of verse 12 leads us to this. This is why wise living as we ask God for these things. Acknowledging our transience encourages us to entrust ourselves to God's faithful and everlasting love and to ask for His compassion. These are good prayers, by the way, to add to your, to your daily prayer list. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. That's such a cool thing to think about that. Satisfy us in the morning. To think about waking up in the morning, and if you don't have a time of your devotions, to think about it. Add this into your calendar. Uh, to, to wake up and think about God's unfailing love. This is his, his it's, the Hebrew word is, I can't pronounce it right. It's chesed. Um, but it is God's unfailing love. It is His covenant love for His children 
God's love is faithful. Yes, we live in a, in a, a world that is groaning under the weight of sin. Yes, our lives are short. Uh, so what's the best use of our lives? To wake up every morning and to cast our eyes on God and to reflect and think about His unfailing love and His great compassion. And then it says, make us glad, which is interesting because um, uh, satisfy us with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. We all seek joy. There's nothing wrong also with asking God to make us glad, that we may be glad um, all our days. Show us your deeds and your splendor. It says, uh, verse 16, may your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. This is a great prayer as well, that God would not just reveal His, His glory to us, but for our children, that God would reveal His splendor to our children. Uh, I, I begin to pray that prayer every day for my kids, that they, would, that they would see the glory of God, that they would see His splendor and fear His name. It's a great prayer. And then, and then may your favor, it ends with verse 17, may, may your favor rest, uh, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands, which is a, a cool, a very logical culmination of this. After reflecting on the fact that God is eternal, God is all-powerful, and that our lives are temporary and full of trouble, uh, if there is if there's anything that's going to come out of our lives that is going to be of permanence, it has to come from God. Uh, so may your favor rest on us and establish our work. Only God is able to bring eternal results from our time-bound efforts. We're not eternal. Uh, we're just here momentarily. So how do we apply this? This is, this is uh, what I've called gaining a heart of wisdom because that's what comes out of verse 12. Teach us to number our days uh, that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. So what, so what is the wisdom that comes out of this? Um, how do I number my days is the question. If that's important, verse 12 says it's important, and I need to consider this, there should be some practical ways in which every day I can do this uh, and, and apply my heart to wisdom in this way. So teach me to number my days. Now, to be very literal about it, the first thing you can do is go ahead and number your days, right? So uh, I got this from a, a, a seminary class once. A professor was talking about someone who got a date stamp and, and got the, he was an insurance, I don't know, related, uh, insurance people in here, they got actuarial tables. And what the insurance people do is they use these actuarial tables to, to know how long you're going to live. So if you want to know how long you're going to live, ask an insurance agent. That's the, that's the lesson there. That's how, that's how the business works, though, in insurance. Um, so, they, so based on your age and, and other factors, they'll have an age in which you're likely going to live. So this guy got the actuarial tables, found out based on his factors how long his life was going to be, and then he got his calendar and took his date stamp and then started dating from that day, started dating downward, decreasing to the day the insurance company said he was going to die. Now, that seems kind of gruesome, but that's one application, right? Teach me to number my days. That may not work for you. The Bible says in this passage, um, you're, you know, Moses said lifespan is, is 70, maybe 80 if you have the strength. That's still accurate today, probably. So, I mean, you don't have to get your actuar actuarial tables from your insurance agent. Just use 80. How many days do you have left until you turn 80? You can, you can then mark those down on your calendar. Now, some of you might be older than 80, and you're going, well, what about me? Well, that's cool because now you're in bonus time. Forget, forget counting down. You can count up now. You're, you're golden, man. Get past 80. That's good stuff. It's all a blessing. Uh, what, are, what are some other ways we can practically apply this wisdom? Well, we, we started by, by looking at sundials. And that was, that was, in the old days, a practical way to apply this wisdom, that every day that, that people went out, they would look at a sundial, and though the mottos aren't things that you might particularly care for, like, remember, you will die, it's a thought to, uh, to get a sundial, put, put that out in your, in your garden, and, or, or do something that's a sundial in your life that reminds you God is eternal and you're not. Okay, the idea is to value the time that God has given you. 
Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to the house in mourning than the house of feasting because death is the end of every man and the living should take it to heart. So here's an idea. Go to funerals. I'm not saying... I'm not saying go get the newspaper and start showing up at strangers' funerals. But don't avoid it. Don't avoid it. I've, I've, uh, I've, I was a pastor for many years, and I've done a lot of funerals, and I've done a lot of weddings. And I can tell you, of the two, um, weddings are fun, um, but funerals are sacred ground because you get a real sense that everybody's paying attention. Now, you go to a wedding, no one's paying attention, right? They're going, well, when do we get to the food? When do we get to the cake? When get this over with? But at a funeral, um, everybody's reflective. It just, there's just something sacred about a funeral atmosphere that causes people to pay attention to the fact that they're too go I. That by the you know that we're all going to end that way, unless Christ comes or takes us out a different way. It doesn't often happen. We're all going to die. Uh, so it's good to remember that the Bible says. So f- don't avoid funerals. Um, you can put mom- they used to do this in the old days. Memento et mori means remember you will die. That's the Latin phrase. Bookkeepers used to put that on like the first page of their accounting books, memento et mori. I, I don't know why. It just seems like an accounting thing, though, right? Maybe any accountants in the room? You can explain that one to me. I don't know. Uh, meditate on Scripture and the brevity of life. In, in your quiet times, there are several Scriptures. I have a, if we can go to the, uh, there's a resources screen I have here, and there are several Scriptures listed here if you want to take a, a screenshot of that with your phone or whatever. Th- these are some passages you can, that you can reflect on in your quiet time that talk about the brevity of life. Um, and again, the Bible says it's wise to do this. Uh, and finally, get outside. Um, you know, we, we, we live with our heads down, busy, working on 20 things at once all the time. And so we don't often stop to reflect um, on the glory of God, but but get outside so that you can experience the vastness of God. I like to drive um, for for a, a long time. We moved back in the '90s. We moved here to Texas from Arizona, and for a while we were we were making that drive from Phoenix to Tyler on a regular basis. Uh, and there's nothing like experiencing the vastness of travel to give you a sense that that we live on a a, a truly big place. And the reality is in our solar system, we're such a tiny planet. <laughs> uh, but, but get outside. Get outside at night and look up at the stars and, and recognize how big God is, that He is the creator of everything. And it helps us to elevate who God is and put ourselves in a proper perspective. Time is short. Live in the moment. Life is precious and temporary. Christ's words were this, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We, we need to live in the moment, not in the five moments, which we typically do. We typically got five things going on. We're living into tomorrow. We're living in the past, and we got a lot of things calling for our attention. And it's just busyness and noise that is a distraction. I like the King James rendering of this, which says, care not for the things of tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And that's what Psalm 90 talks about. The wrath of God is what we have to deal with, not, not, that, it, not that it condemns us, but that, that it is affecting all the world around us. Uh, speaking about noise, the, the, this book, um, if, 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 you need to, uh, if you need some help organizing your day and getting a handle on time, Jordan Rayner um, wrote a book called Redeeming Your Time, which, which has got some very practical ways um, that help you with, with time management. John Eldridge, uh, he wrote a book called Get Your Life Back, big proponent on getting outside and getting space in your life so that you can reflect on the things of God. 
Uh, Rayner talks about trying, trying to get out of the kingdom of noise, and he borrows that phrase from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis used that phrase in um, the Screw Tape Letters, which is a great book also, <clears throat> the idea of the kingdom of noise. That, that thought was uh, captured by an author named Jeffrey Brashears, because Lewis wrote back in 1942, the Screw Tape Letters. <clears throat> Screw Tape Letters is an imaginary collection of letters between a senior devil named Screw Tape <clears throat> and his neophyte pupil named Wormwood on the techniques and tactics for har uh, harassing the enemy, which is God, and seducing, distracting, and frustrating his followers, Christians. Uh, the following is an updated version on this theme. So C.S. Lewis didn't write this, but this guy named Jeffrey Bashirs thought if C.S. Lewis wrote today, this is what he would write. I'll just read this one paragraph. <clears throat> this is from, from uh, uh, Screw Tape to Wormwood. Good news. Uh, the latest commendations have arrived from the council of the pit. You impressed the lower demons my zealous Wormwood. They have heard of your proposals to the Noise Proliferation Committee. Indeed, uh, places of solitude and moments of silence grow ever more scarce in the enemy's um, vast and vulgar dominion. Oh, what euphoria to see his insufferable creatures constantly multitasking, rushing to fill the dead air with a cacophony of cell phones and music, leaf blowers and motorcycles, 24-hour news and iPods, not to mention car stereos cranked up full blast and serenading the cityscape with the hellish sounds of hip-hop and heavy metal. Those nauseating humans cannot escape their self-made dungeon of dim. My pride bubbles like brimstone wormwood. So it's a good thought on the, the noise that we surround ourselves with. doesn't leave us any margins to reflect on who God is. Here's what Rayner says. There are <clears throat> five ways that noise limits our ability to redeem time. Uh, and, and again, the, the, the things we surround ourselves with. Number one, it limits our ability to think. Uh, th we live in an age of information, and now we've got chat GPT. You could ask it anything. We've got all this, these sources of information. We've got 24-hour news. We've got 24-hour everything. And you have access to it from a device in your pocket. But, but it limits our, the, the proliferation of that information limits our ability to think. A wealth, uh, there's a quote that a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And so we've lost the ability to pay attention to any one thing because we're trying to pay attention to every five things. Uh, noise limits our ability to redeem time because it limits our ability to be creative. Um, when you don't have space uh, to be creative, you can't be creative. God, in, God intended us for to, to be creative. And so it's, so it's good to limit the noise in your life, uh, which, will, which will increase your creativity. Your kids hate boredom, right? They complain all the time, I'm so bored I'm going to die. Uh, but, but the truth is, uh, boredom never killed anybody. Typically, boredom does not produce death. Typically, boredom produces creativity. So you'll notice when a kid is bored, eventually something creative is going to happen. You may not like it, but something creative is going to happen. <laughs> Noise limits our ability to cultivate depth. Because we're, we're so focused and, <clears throat> and our time is, and, and thoughts are flitting around so fast, <clears throat> we lose the ability to think deeply about anything. Uh, but the whole point of, of Psalms is that it was meditative. Moses probably wrote this, maybe, while he was in Midian, while he was shepherding. David wrote Psalms. What was David? He was a shepherd. This, people had time and space that resulted in creativity. Uh, uh, so you need to find a way to fit time and space to be able to cultivate depth because God wants us to think deeply and to reflect on these things. A lot of the Psalms were not just poetry, but they were sung. That's how they were handed down to us is because they would sing these songs um, together. And, and these songs taught something, uh, taught the basic truths of the faith to the people. We do the same thing, right? We sing songs. We had a beautiful song that we sang earlier, that great are you God, right? What, is, what does that mean, great are you God? That God is vast. That, that, that prayer we teach kids, God is good, God is great. Let us thank him for our food. Both, both are true and that pass along to generations. 
knowing that God morally, God is good, God is perfect, and that he's great, that he's vast, that he is all present, all these things. And we sing these things together. We teach these songs to kids from the time they're small, and you remember them today. This is the value of the songs that we sing together. Like, like if, if I sang this song, you could join me because you remember the words, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Right? You remember the words even now. You may not have sung that song in a long time, but you remember it. Um, so all these things are important, but we're distracted by, by the busyness and the, the kingdom of noise around us. A researcher at San Diego State has been studying psychological health uh, of young people for more than 20 years Around 2012, she noticed a significant shift in health patterns of kids born between 95 and 2012, large peaks in anxiety, depression, and suicide rate. She noted that these spikes correlate to the period when the number of Americans owned a smartphone passed 50%. Our brains are not designed to multitask. God made your mind for meditation. We don't multitask. Your brain doesn't do that. Uh, so, so we think kids are good at multitasking. It's absolutely not true. Brains don't multitask. Uh, kids are just used to paying partial attention to many things at once, but, it, but it's not multitasking. Um, that's a nice way of, be, of saying distracted. And so we have a lot of distraction, and it's growing, and that's created a lot of anxiety and, and a lot of problems. Um, how to deal with the noise then? Just a, just a few practical tips as we, as we turn to close here. Um, news. We have a 24-hour news channel. Do you need to know breaking news when it happens? You don't. Trust me. Your friends will tell you. If it's important, you'll find out. You don't need to keep your nose in the news all the time. Uh, email. Do you need to check your email every 10 minutes? You don't. I do. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll admit it's a, it's a struggle. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to decrease that cycle. You get physical mail at your house, right? How often does the mailman come to your house? Once? A day? That's insane. What if the mailman came to your house every 10 minutes and knocked on your door, right? Eventually, you would tell him, look, could you just come once a day? And yet our email, we're totally different. We accept our email all the time. How about just check it once or twice a day if you can, if, that's, if that works in your job, Limit the times in which you check email. Social media, okay? It, social media um, creates anxiety for all ages. I'm not going to harass kids here. For all ages, if you have social media, you have a device in your pocket that's constantly calling for your attention, constantly calling you to check it, which creates what, what Jordan Rayner says is an open loop. An open loop in your life is something that you feel like you have to do. Something you feel like you, it's calling for your attention. It's something you, you feel like you have to pay attention to it to complete something. And, and so social media leaves a constant open loop or open loops in your life as you feel like you have to get back to them. Life has enough open loops, and, and so, so we don't need to add to those. And, and speaking of open loops, again, I recommend this book to you, Redeeming Your Time, that <clears throat> talks about the fact that deal with open loops just get used to when you have an open loop in your life. In other words, something you need to do. Uh, these are the kind of things that wake you up at 3, in the, 3 a.m. in the morning, right, and won't let you get back to sleep. Oh, I need to do this. I need. If you'll get in the habit of just writing them down, that's, that's step A. Just write them down on a to-do list. If you can just start doing that, everything that is an open loop in your life, write it down. Then you'll get a sense that my brain doesn't have to keep track of all this. Remember, your brain is a, is a single-tasking machine, not a multitasking machine. If, if you can relieve your brain of the burden of trying to keep up with all those open loops, you'll decrease your anxiety. Okay? So write it down, get your to-do list going, and, and uh, avoid the open loops. <clears throat> Basically, dissent from the kingdom of noise and I end with this thought. Christ knew this. Christ um, had a lot of demands on his time. Uh, and, and, and what was his reaction? How did he manage all the demands on his time? Luke says, as the news about Christ spread all the more, 
the crowds of people came to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. They pressed on him all the time. Verse 16 says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So what I'm going to suggest is that you find a lonely place or lonely places, a place where you can be solitary, uh, you can be by yourself. You may have to get creative with this. If you, if you can use your commute uh, from work, if you drive home from work, turn off the radio, let that be your lonely place. Uh, this day and age, a lot of people are working hybrid or working from home. The problem with that is you have no separation from work to home. Work is your home. That's a, that's a struggle. You're going to have to find a different lonely place, right? So find a way to get away all by yourself to be able to reflect and meditate on God's Word. It could be mowing the lawn. That's uh, some of my best ideas come when I'm pushing a lawnmower back and forth, back and forth uh, across my backyard. Um, it could be from, from uh, walking or running. There's a lot of different ways that you could find lonely places. Uh, a lot of these creative things that come out of Scripture came from lonely places. Uh, the words of Jesus, Moses writes the psalm, David writes a lot of psalms. Um, there's a lot of great works of art that came from lonely places. Unfortunately, a lot of these people didn't choose to go to these lonely places, but like Van Gogh, we get, we get uh, some of his great works of art um, while he was in a lonely place in an insane asylum. But... <laughs> But, but find a lonely place. Don't be committed to a lonely place. You know, take, take the offensive here and, and get intentional about finding a lonely place in your life, whether it be your commute, walking, running, walk, whatever. Um, I suggest you do that. <clears throat> so, so the conclusion is this. Teach us to wisely use all the time we have. Psalm 90, verse 12. We pray, pray, pray that Lord would help us to number our days and understand the value of each moment in our lives and to treat it as sacred space. Uh, the final illustration I, uh, sticks with me as a, uh, as a professor. <clears throat> I heard the story who students got to the end of a semester and, and it was time to turn in their semester project and the grade was heavily weighted on this semester project. <clears throat> One of the students just didn't get it done. And he knew that he was sunk. His, his grade, he was going to fail the class. So he decided in desperation to go to the professor and to ask for more time. He said, he said I really need more time. I just, didn't, I just didn't have enough time to finish the assignment. And the professor's, professor's response sticks with me because it's, it's very wise. He said, son, you had all the time there is. And, and that is true of each one of us. We all have all the time there is. Use it wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are the Eternal One. We are not. <clears throat> Father, re remind us that we are finite, that we are but dust, that if there's anything to be accomplished from our lives that will have meaning, it will have to be done through you. Uh, and for that, we will give you the glory. We thank you so much for this lesson. <clears throat> Help us to be mindful of these things each day, to write these things on our hearts uh, that we might number our days and give you glory. Uh, we thank you for these things, and uh, we, we pray you bless us as we go out in Jesus' name. Amen.